having the option to change course is really valuable when you're making decisions under uncertainty. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz. And I wanna thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at athabascau.ca. My special guest today is Annie Duke. Annie is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. Her latest book is Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, she has won more than $4 million in tournament poker, including a World Series of Poker bracelet, and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads Up Championship, earning herself the nickname, the Duchess of Poker. She is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She is also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. Annie, welcome back to Unleashed. Thank you for having me back. I'm so excited. So there's, I don't, I don't know how much of a fan you are of SNL, uh, but uh, I'm a big fan of the Five Timers Club. And yes. uh, so you probably didn't, you didn't realize it, but you're now a member of an exclusive club as the, only the second person that has ever made two appearances on Unleashed. Oh, well, wait, do I get like a jacket like they do on SNL with like the number two on it or something? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, you know, the, the odds that we'll get people coming back for the fifth visit is probably unlikely. So uh, we probably should start sending out something. Well, I don't know, maybe I'll just keep reading. If I write enough books that are worthwhile, I'll, I'll keep getting asked on and then I can be part of the five timers club. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's exactly right. So I, uh, I'm so thrilled that you agreed to come back on. Uh, I loved our first conversation so much. I reference it uh, uh, to a lot of people uh, that, that ask about episodes that they should watch. I reference it lots just for my own thinking. So there was so much there. And uh, so I was just uh, I know, delighted when you, when you accepted the invitation to come on, back on and talk about this book. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'm excited about this one. So happy to talk about it. That's great. So. Uh, I conjure up these images in my mind of uh, when these ideas come to your head and I think about like it's like 4 4 a.m. in the middle of the night and you like wake up from a deep sleep and you're like oh I need to write this book and I wondered if you would take us back to the moment when you realized quit was a book that needed to be written. You know it's so funny because I, I would say that normally that's certainly not the way it goes for me like with thinking in bets which was sort of my first general audience book. I'd been kind of thinking about it for like six years, you know, like I started, I started thinking, I wanted to write two books. One was going to be a poker book. One was going to be basically thinking in bets. And I was like, oh, I'll write the poker book first. And then thinking in bets just took like a long time to come into sort of the world. Um, same thing with how to decide, but with quit, it was like 
all of a sudden one day. So what you're describing is basically what happened. So here's here's how it went. I'm doing the promotion for How to Decide, which was my last book. And there's like a page maybe in there about quitting. And it's a very specific point about quitting, which is that uh, having the option to change course is really valuable when you're making decisions under uncertainty. It's like you make a decision and then you find other stuff out. And so like optionality, like, oh, I can quit um, is a really good thing to have sort of in your back pocket uh, that allows you to kind of speed up your decision making. So it's like this very specific, narrow point. Like I say, it's like a page. So I'm doing the podcast to promote the book. And they were asking me all sorts of other questions about the book. And I kept pushing the conversation to, to this little section that I had written about quitting uh, and why it was so important conceptually. So that was like my first clue. So that happened like in October. And then on like the 10th conversation where I just made them talk about quitting instead of anything else in the book, I called up uh, my agent and I said, you know, I know I said I was never going to write another book, which is what I said, but I kind of think I have a bug here. And I said to him, I want to write a book and I want to call it quit. And he goes, you know, he didn't get it. He was like, what do you mean quit? And I said, well, like not like quitting, like, alcohol or something like that, which like, I, you know, that's a totally different topic. I mean, like as a, a counterpoint to grit, right? As the question of, should we actually give people the advice, like just stick to things and you'll succeed? Like winners never quit, quitters never win. Like, let's do that. And more really diving into the circumstances under which it's really hard to quit, what the science behind quitting is. Um, and how we might get better at this thing. Because quitting is a really important skill, right? That's sort of what I was talking about. Like, if you have to make decisions under uncertainty, it's really important to be able to quit when the world gives you new information that you ought to walk away. So he kind of got it at that point. He was like, okay, I get it. Why don't you go work on that? So that was probably the moment that I knew I was going to write the book. But then what really sealed the deal for me was I started saying, well, who who can I talk to about this topic? Uh, and I wrote um, Danny Kahneman, who, Nobel laureate, who I'm very lucky to be, to call a friend. And a lot of his work is very related to this issue. And in the, the book quit that came out of this, you'll see like his work is all woven throughout this because a lot of his work really relates to this problem of sort of over persisting, like persisting too long in things. So I wrote him a note and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about writing this book about quitting. And I said, like, not like quitting alcohol, but more like the way that all these cognitive biases, like loss aversion and sunk cost and status quo bias and endowment and so on and so forth, really make it very hard uh, for us to, to let go of things when, you know, when we should. And his response back was so enthusiastic. And he was just immediately like, yes. And I got on a Zoom with him. And it was very clear he was excited about the topic. So I feel like he's got a better sense of like what a good topic to explore is than I do for sure. And then from there, I just started talking to a whole bunch of people. I, I did probably about 40 hours worth of Zooms with a variety of people, including Richard Thaler, whose work is also very integral to the book, a guy named Barry Staw, 
who's an amazing scientist who's done a ton of work where not only is his science woven through the book, but the story of his father not quitting something is also woven throughout the book. And he's just amazing. Um, you know, Marie Schweitzer, Michael Mobison, Phil Tetlock, Don Moore, so many people that I can't even, it's too many people for me to name. But to a person, it was almost like, yes, like, please talk about this because someone needs to have this conversation that, you know, a lot of times we need to cut our losses and that's okay. And how do we get better at that? So it was really kind of like the enthusiasm of the community as I started to dig into that, that really sealed the deal for me in terms of wanting to write this book. You really found something there. Was Did you find any reluctance of people uh, to want to talk about quitting examples or quitting stories? Because I can imagine it, for some people it might have actually felt cathartic to make a safe space or a courageous space to speak about it. You know, it's interesting. Like I, I actually, that was one of the things was that I didn't have any pushback. Like the, the only pushback I got was from one person who I talked to who was concerned that basically what they said is young people today don't have grit and they they quit too much. And I don't want to give people the wrong message. Um, but they followed it with, but what you're talking about is different than that. And I think that actually they need to hear that. I'm just, they were more concerned that like people might take from it what they will. That was really the, actually like, honestly, the only pushback I got. Um, uh, what I would say is that when I talk to people, whether it was scientists who had sort of worked on the biases that you can sort of tie together as quitting problems, um, or uh, people whose stories that I was telling about quitting, the the word that I would use probably to describe the feeling that I got from them was relief. I mean, I, I think that would be the main, like, oh, yes, thank you. Like, please talk about this topic. Please make this okay. Because the fact is that separate from the cognitive issues uh, that make it very hard for us to quit, which I'm sure we can talk about today, there's also just this like, you know, if you quit, you're a loser. And that that's just like what we feel like. It's like, you know, sticking to things and quitting. They're like opposing forces. And, you know, quitting is a, you know, a vice and sticking to things or grit is a virtue. We think about grit or perseverance or sticking to things as like character building, whereas quitting shows a lack of character. Um, and there's just this way that we think so negatively. And you can even like think about like the synonyms that come to mind for quitting, like, you know, being capricious or weak-willed or cowardly or, you know, other, you know, and grit is like, oh, you know, steadfast and you know i mean i think one of the the synonyms is like heroism right so we see the way that we sort of think about these things um that make it so hard for us to feel like you know it's not a sign of failure or a sign of lack of character when we walk away from something and the the reason I think that people were so relieved when I said, well, I really want to talk about this topic and sort of rehabilitate this idea of quitting is that like on an intellectual level, I think that we know that there are of course times that we should quit, right? Like if you're climbing Everest and there's a snowstorm, you probably shouldn't keep going. Um, and when people do keep going under those circumstances, we sort of know when we're away sort of looking from the outside in that of course there are circumstances where quitting is the right choice and you ought to do it. Um, yeah. But when it comes to having to face that decision ourselves, it's 
it's so hard for us to do that because we feel like we failed. We feel like a loser when we do that. And, and so I think that's why people were like, oh yes, like I feel relief that someone wants to sort of say, this is okay. Yeah. My social media is filled with, uh, with self-help uh, advice, probably more so than it ever has been. And one of the common threads, and, and you, you touched on it already, is that the only difference between winners and losers is that winners don't quit. And so you've had a chance to dig into the psychology of it. Like, why does quitting get such a bad rap in the first place? Why do we have such a difficult time with that concept? Yeah, so, oh my gosh. So, I mean, separate and apart from just sort of like, uh, the, the way that we think about quitting, you know, negatively, I think it's a reflection of the bias that we have toward quitting. And I would put it all under sort of a big umbrella, which comes from um, Richard Thaler, which is that we don't like to close mental accounts in the losses. So, so let me try to explain what that means a little bit. So yeah. what is a mental account? So we have a mental accounting system. You can think about a ledger, right? And so, uh, you know, when we start something, we open up a mental account, right? And we're measuring like, are we winning or losing sort of to that account? So let, let's take a simple example. You buy a stock, right? So you've opened up, you've opened up a physical account for that's an actual real world account for that stock, but you also have a mental account open for that stock. So now uh, if the stock goes up, if it goes up from 50 to 60, that mental account for you is now in the gains just as the mental account, you know, the actual on your ledger, your physical ledger, you would be in the gains, you would be up $10. Um, but if it goes down, you're now what's called in the losses, right? So what that means is that uh, you on the books, you have a loss. Okay, so this is very, this is a case where like the, the way that we think about it mentally lines up to what we would have on a ledger. And the fact is that we don't like to close those accounts in the losses. So uh, with something like a stock, um, if you bought it at 50 and it's now at 30 um, and let's, so now you're, you're carrying a 30, uh, a $20 loss. Um, as long as you hold on to the stock, you have a chance of getting back to 50 and not actually having to turn that loss on paper that you're carrying into a realized loss. Right. And that's, we can think about that from the mental accounting state as well. You're sort of carrying this $20 loss, you know, in your mental account, and it's only when you actually sell it that you now have to close that account in the losses, right? Okay, so that's clear for a stock, but what does that have to do with like uh, other things where we might not be willing to walk away from them? Um, well, basically, let's say that we're, uh, we go to start a marathon, right? We now have opened an, an account for that marathon. Um, and we have a goal and the goal is to run 26.2 miles. So this is important because we have to think about what's the starting point and what's the finish line. And basically if we quit the marathon at any point before we've reached the finish line, we're, we're from a cognitive standpoint in the losses because we're short of the finish line. So notice here, we, we have sort of, if you think about it objectively, let's say I quit at mile eight, um, I've run eight miles so that sh we should view that as positive as being in the gains in terms of having run eight miles. But that's not the way cognitively we think about it. We think about ourselves as short of the 26.2 miles. In other words, short 18.2 miles. OK, so now that means that if we walk away, we have to we have to close that account in the losses that 
that problem is so strong. Like it's such a big problem for us that if you go and Google people finishing marathons with broken bones, you will be shocked at how many of these stories you see. So in the 2019 marathon, there was a woman named Siobhan O'Keefe who started experiencing some pain pretty early on. The, the pain got worse and worse. And on mile eight, her fibula snapped and she finished the race. Obviously in excruciating pain, right? Like from the outside, you're looking in, you're like, what? Except that that's not a weird story. In the exact same marathon, somebody broke their ankle on like at the same point, I think, right around mile six or eight, finished the race. Like you can see, you can look at any marathon that you see, you're going to find somebody like stepped on a water bottle, you know, broke their ankle, broke their leg, whatever. And they continue to run because this concern, like this idea that we fall short of that goal, that we have to quit and take the loss is so horrifying to us that we won't do it. So we, we can go into details about other biases, but when I think about what's sort of the overarching problem, it's that problem, that it's this mental accounting problem. So if we are in the gains and we quit, do we not perceive it as quitting then? So we, we, we do, and that's where you get this, like literally when you think about all the aphorisms, like winners never quit, quitters never win, they're all kind of negative to quitting except for one. And that one is quit while you're ahead, right? So it's okay, bad advice. you suggest one. it's bad advice. <laughs> it's terrible advice. So let, let me explain why it's terrible advice. So look, the whole point is that there shouldn't be an opposition, but we shouldn't think of grit and quit as opposing forces. And by the way, I really recommend people read Grit. I think it's a, a great book. I think Angela Duckworth uh, is brilliant. Um, and I am not telling people that you shouldn't stick to things. Of course you should. Uh, the key is don't think about, you know, anything worth doing probably is going to be hard at some point, right? The issue is that you don't want to just say stick to things no matter what, because that builds character. In other words, like to have succeeded at something, I will have had to have stuck to it. So therefore I should just stick to things. And by the way, Angela Duckworth wouldn't say that. She wants you to stick to the right things because the issue is that grit can get you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, but it also gets you to stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile. So what we want to do is say, how do we calibrate these two decisions? Because any decision to stick to something is a decision not to quit and any decision to quit is a decision not to stick to it. So what we're trying to do is calibrate the two choices. All right, so this is why quit while ahead is such, your head is such bad advice. Because just as we don't like to close mental accounts in the losses, we love to close them in the gains. And in our life, what we're trying to do is to be on the most, most worthwhile path. That is the thing that we're trying to accomplish in our life. Sometimes that worthwhile path we're already gonna be in the gates. Sometimes we won't, okay? And that's what we're trying to figure the difference out between. So let me just sort of get to the science behind this. So, you know, Colin Kammerer uh, with a variety of collaborators, including Richard Thaler, by the way, looked at taxi driver sheets. So this was like before Uber, um, taxi driver sheets, um, just looking at when they were clocking in and out. So these are drivers who, uh, they're essentially like contract workers and, you know, there's somebody who owns the medallion. And so they rent the cab basically for 12 hour shifts. So, so they have to rent the cab. They have to pay the money for the 12 hour shift. So 
they were looking at, you know, how optimal is are their decisions about when they keep driving versus when they quit driving during that 12 hours, right? So they're not driving 12 hours every single day. They're choosing, you know, how long they're driving. And what he found is that um, they found is that the their decisions were super suboptimal. Um, and they were making decisions that were mistakes in two directions. One was there were days where they were quitting really fast. And the other was, was that there were days where they were driving for a really, really, really long time. And it's not that that wouldn't make sense to do that. It's that the circumstances would have to be correct for you to do that. So ideally, and I hope that you can see this, you should quit when there really aren't any fares to pick up, right? Because what's the point of like staying in your cab if there's nobody to pick up? So you would hope that when they're quitting fast, it's because the conditions are telling them that they're not, there's not a lot of money-making opportunities, right? On the flip side, when they're staying in their cab for a long time, when they're, when they're driving for hours, one would assume they're doing that because there are lots of fares to pick up. And so, you know, the getting is good, right? Like drive when the getting is good. So you would assume that that's the case, but it was actually flipped. So they were quitting when there were lots and lots of fares, when the conditions were good in general, and they were sticking when the conditions were bad. Why? Well, it goes back to this in the gains and in the losses problem. It turned out that the drivers had set an earnings goal for the day. So they had this simple heuristic, like I want to make this amount of money. So let's say they want to make uh, $500 that day. So when they hit that 500, they're done, right? Because they've reached their goal. So they can't get out of their cab short of the 500 because that would be getting out in the losses in comparison to the goal. So they keep driving, trying to get to that $500 goal for the day. But as soon as they hit that 500, they can quit because they're in the gains. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you get to your 500 really fast, it means the conditions are great and there's lots of fares. If you get to it really slow, it means the conditions are bad and there aren't lots of fares. So notice that they're kind of like the inverse of a good strategy. So how yeah. much did this cause them? How much did this quit while they're ahead? Because that's what they're doing. Quit while they're yes. ahead, stick, stick while they're behind. That was their what, what the behavior ended up doing. Well, if they had actually made optimal decisions, meaning that, you know, when the going's good, keep driving, when the going's bad, don't, they would have earned 15% more than what they actually earned with this sort of just get to the 500 or whatever, get to the earnings number um, strategy. But here's the interesting thing. If they had just randomly <laughs> chosen when to drive and when not to, they would have made 8% more money, which is like a super random strategy, okay? So like, think about like how much is being left on the table there because they're quitting while they're ahead. So this, this goes back to really early work from Kahneman Tversky. This was actually some of the basis for prospect theory, where they sort of offered this proposition that was very much like what the cab drivers are offered. And it basically just went like this. Um, and I'll ask you what you would do in this situation, Jeff. So, okay. Um, I owe you a hundred bucks. I'm going to offer you this proposition. We can flip a coin. If you call the coin correctly, I'll give you 200. But if you call it incorrectly, you're going to get zero. Or you can just take the sure $100. I'll offer you the $100 right now. Which, what thing do you want to do? 
Yeah, well, I, I sort of know what you should do because I've read your book, but my even my instinct now is like, I'm just taking the sure thing. I want that money back. Yeah, you want me. that $100. Now, in this particular case, in this particular case, it doesn't matter what you do because both of them carry the same expected value. A uh, 50-50 shot at 200 versus zero is, is worth $100, and I'm offering you $100. That's fine. Okay, so so you're deciding you want to take the 100 Okay, you owe me $100, but I'm going to let you flip double or nothing. Do you take the flip? Absolutely. 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 But notice now here, it's the exact same decision, right? So that's the, this uh -huh. is the weird thing. So a double or nothing for a loss of 200 versus zero is worth $100 that you would owe me. And you owe me $100. So now we can see an asymmetry, right? Which is that when you can get the sure gain, when I'm going to hand you 100 bucks, you don't want to gamble. You just want to be done with it and take that $100, right? But when you've got a loss on the books already, you want to keep the gamble on. This is the stock problem, right? Why yeah. do you want to keep that gamble on when the stock has gone to 30? Because you want to get, you want to wipe the loss off the book. So now you want to like recruit luck into the equation. And this is something that um, Daniel Kahneman calls sure loss aversion. So people have heard of loss aversion, which is sort of yeah. the fear of making a decision that may, you know, you could lose that. This is called sure loss aversion, which is, a fear of take, taking a loss that's on paper and turning it into a sure loss or a realized loss. And as Kahneman says, loss aversion stops you from getting started. It makes it so you won't make a decision for fear of losing. Uh, but sure loss aversion stops you from quitting, right? It makes it so that you don't stop. So, and this is so strong that you're willing to pay for the opportunity to keep that gamble on. So if I change it to, you know, I'm going to give you this hundred or we can flip 220 or zero. People will still say no to that, even though that now you're, you're making a dollar 10, I mean, $110, right? So that's 10%. And you're giving that $10 up in order to just get that hundred dollars in the pocket. Um, but on the flip side, if I say, uh, uh, you know, you, you owe me a hundred dollars, let's flip it 220 or zero. You'll say yes. So you're paying for that. So this, if we go back to the stock problem, the fact is, and this is where the mental accounting really goes awry, is that your job, and this is true for any decision you make, should be, I want my money in the best place possible. That's that's going to earn me the most money. I want to stay in the cab when um, I rate to make the most money per hour. I want to stay at the poker table when I rate to make the most money per hour. I want to stay in a job that rates to gain me the most happiness or a relationship that rates to gain me the most happiness. So I'm going to have my money in the stock. That means that I can't put that into something else. And if there's something else that will be more likely to earn me a positive return, it should matter very little that I happen to have lost $20 in the stock and gone from 50 to 30. I don't need to get my money back in that stock. I should move the money into something that's better, but we won't do that because we want to keep the gamble on to get back to even in that stock because that's the way we do our mental accounting. So this is a very, very costly mistake that we make. You can see it with the cab drivers. You can see it with stock traders. And you can see that ultimately in like, what's the job you're staying in? What's the relationship you're staying in? What's the project that you're sticking to? So on and so forth. It really runs across any decision that you make. Yeah, you have done a wonderful job there, I think, of highlighting why our brains are so interesting and how there's so many cognitive biases conspiring against them. And 
know, the work of Kahneman and others that, you, yeah, that you've already uh, mentioned in this conversation, uh, I think have highlighted that we are not, we're not rational thinkers, not at all. We like to think we are, but we certainly aren't. So this is, this is really the meat of the conversation, uh, Annie, that I'm so interested to dive into. One of the things you mentioned was expected value, but how does an average person that, that's listening to this conversation start to apply some tools? What can we do to start to win that battle against these cognitive biases? Yeah, so um, let me just, so let me just say this. Uh, I would like to make sure that people understand something before we talk about how to fix it, that we have an intuition that when the world tells us to quit, we'll do it. Okay, so we have the intuition, you know, you, you make a decision, you understand at the time that you made the decision that there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know and that luck is going to influence the outcome. And obviously you're going to find new things out afterwards and that when you find those new things out, you're going to quit when they're bad things, right? So we have the intuition that when we're like climbing Everest, that if a snowstorm comes in, we'll obviously turn around. We have the intuition when we start a relationship that if it turns out that the other person is toxic, that we're going to walk away. We, you know, we have the intuition that when we run a marathon, if we break our leg on mile eight, we're obviously not going to keep running. And I think that everybody has that intuition that when the world tells us no, that we're going to hear the world and we're going to react to it and actually do it. And all the work that has to do with this problem shows us that particularly when we're in the losses, we will not do that. It goes under this sort of umbrella of called escalation of commitment, that it's not just that we don't react to the negative information, it's that we actually double down our, our commitment to the cause. We can see this, for example, with the Vietnam War or the war in Afghanistan, right? Like, how do you end up in a war that clearly we're not winning for 20 years? Well, because like, once you're in it, even though we're getting signals, like in Vietnam, right, that we're not winning, things aren't going well, like, you know, it's probably not a great idea for us to stay in it. We still keep going. And that's true of like business ideas or startups or relationships or whatever it is that when we get those signals, we don't react to them well. So let me just be clear that your intuition that, oh, I don't really need to do anything in particular because the world's going to tell me when I quit and then I'll do it, is it's just not, it, the science does not back that up. That That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that even if you know it's a problem, and this is true generally of all cognitive biases, right? So if you know about escalation of commitment, if you know about this mental accounting problem that we have, if you know about sunk costs, for example, that we, we fear to walk away from things for fear of having wasted the resources that we already put in them, as opposed to thinking about the resources that we might go forward. So like, as an example, with war, you have this really a big resource, which is human lives that have put into it. And we hear people say things like, well, we can't quit the war because then all the people who gave their lives for the war, those lives will have been wasted, right? And this is very intuitive. It's hard to sort of overcome that, that cognitive illusion because of course the, the question is, as heartbreaking it is, is, you have to ask, is the next life worthwhile? That's the question, is the next life we're gonna put at risk? worthwhile, but this isn't the way that we naturally think. And just knowing that, knowing about something like sunk cost or escalation of commitment or mental accounting won't help you. 
So much so that I talk in the book about somebody named Jeffrey Rubin, who uh, worked exactly on these escalating, you know, commitment problems uh, and getting entrapped in our previous decisions. And, you know, he did a really interesting study. He did one of the pioneering studies in this where people were asked uh, to do a crossword puzzle and they got money for every answer that they got right. Um, but after a certain time, uh, if you passed a certain amount of time uh, that you were working on the puzzle, you would start to lose money and you could go down all the way down to zero. So he had people doing these crossword puzzles, but some of the answers were like super hard. And he told them, oh, if you run against a hard problem, I can get you a crossword puzzle dictionary. But the dictionary that we only have one. So there's other people doing it. You might have to wait for the dictionary. So they would request the dictionary. And then the question was, how long would they wait? And the answer was for a lot of them until they had no money left. Like they literally would wait. I mean, because the dictionary was never going to come. So the question was, when would they actually quit and say, ah, I'm just going to take the money I have. Um, and this was as their money was sort of ticking downward and they would not walk away. So this is this guy, Jeffrey Rubin. He did this work with a guy named Joel Brockner. So if there's anyone who knows about these problems, it's this guy. And yeah. this is the big warning that I want to give people. So Jeffrey Rubin was uh, working on, he wanted to climb, uh, there's a hundred peaks in New England. And so this is like an accomplishment uh, that very few people actually make. And so he's climbing his hundredth peak in New England. And he has a graduate student along with him uh, and they're going up the mountain and a very, very heavy fog rolls in to where you really have no visibility at all. The graduate students like, I think we should turn around, right? So we're waiting for a crossword puzzle dictionary now. I mean, this is the exact situation, right? I think we should turn around. Brockner said, no, he wanted, I'm sorry, not Brockner, Rubin. Uh, Jeffrey Rubin said, no, he wanted to continue on. And his body was found two days later. So, the, I mean, this is a horrible tragedy where somebody continued on in conditions where, where they should not have kept going. But you know, it was the hundredth peak and that's the goal. And if he turns around, he's short the goal. He's not gonna make it. And he knows that this is a cognitive error. He Because this is his field of study and just tragically perished despite that. So I hope that that just blows up for people the idea that like you can somehow just knowing about it or like, you know, trying to sort of Jedi mind trick yourself out of these cognitive biases is going to work for you. That's disconcerting that the expert in that field, uh, one of the one of the leading, most knowledgeable minds on this specific topic, and that wasn't enough. And so like, it, it seems hopeless for for the, for the rest of us, Annie. I mean, what, what, but what it's not hopeless. A... I have good news for you. Okay, well, <laughs> what is it? What is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. So Basically, look, here, here, here's the big problem with quitting. We've been talking about this moment, right? This moment where you convert failing into having failed, where you convert a loss on paper into a realized loss. That's that quitting moment. That's what's so hard for us. So the issue is that we're really bad at making these kinds of decisions when we're in it. This is a, a way that Daniel Kahneman talks about it being in the decision, being in it. Uh, what do I mean by being in it? Like uh, 
you're trying to, you know, you've decided you're not going to eat processed food. And then you're like at a kid's birthday party and there's a cupcake in front of you. That's being in the decision. We all know how hard it is to resist that. Right. So, so Brockner was in it, right? If you had asked him beforehand, do you think you should keep climbing when there's a fog? He probably would have said no. And he pro probably had the intuition like the rest of us that, well, obviously when the fog rolls in, I'll turn around. But we, like, that's the intuition, but he didn't do that because he yeah. was in, that was the moment where he was going to have to say, I didn't make it to the top of my hundredth peak. Okay. So once we kind of understand that that's the, that's the genesis, like that's kind of at the, the bottom of the problem, we have to come up with tools that make it so we're not in it. Yeah. Okay. So how do we do that? There's yeah. kind of two ways to do that. Um, and then we can talk about a third thing, which is approach the problem in the right way. That's monkeys and pedestals. Let's hold that for a second. So there's two okay. ways we can do that. One is to make all sorts of decisions about when to quit and when not to quit before we're facing the decision down. So this is through the use of something called kill criteria, or at least that I call kill criteria. Um, I yep. can't say it's called kill criteria because it's my term, but um, okay. So kill criteria are basically saying, what are those signals that when I'm in it, I'm probably going to ignore? Let me think about what those are in advance. And let me let me actually pre-commit to a, a particular way to, to act on those, right? So this is saying, uh, I'm going to think in advance so that uh, I'm not thinking about when should I quit and when should I not quit when I'm actually in the decision. I'm going to do it long before I'm in the decision. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I was uh, one of my clients, M Particle. Um, they're a SaaS company uh, that offers a customer data platform, um, and they've got you know a bunch of sellers uh, as SaaS companies will. And the thing about sellers is that they're like super naturally gritty people, right? Like once they have a lead, they're not going to let it go. Uh, yeah. But that's actually bad, right? Because what you want is your sellers to be spending their time on leads that are worthwhile, that are positive, expected value, and to abandon the ones as quickly as possible that aren't going to bear fruit. So this is what you'd like to have happen, but we know that sellers just hang on until the bitter end. So we're trying to stop that behavior. So we sent out a prompt to the sellers, uh, which basically went like this, like you got a lead through an RFP or RFI. It's six months later uh, that you've lost the deal. Looking back, you realize that there were early signals that you weren't going to win the deal. What were they? So we sent that out to like 40 sellers. We asked them to, to answer independently, uh, independent the independence of the answer is going to generally get you a better brainstorm. Uh, they then sent in all their answers, got a huge long list, uh, but I'll give you a couple of them as an example. One was uh, in the first meeting, uh, the potential customer only talked about price. They want to know anything else. They just want to know price. Uh, so that was yeah. a very common answer. Uh, a second one was uh, we couldn't get an executive in the room or a decision maker in the room. Okay, yeah. so now we have, it was a very long list. That's just two of them. Um, and we have this list and we turn those into kill criteria. In other words, we we then do sent out back out to the sellers and said, uh, we want you to work in groups and just decide for any of these things, what should your reaction to that be? So notice we're asking in the abstract. We're not asking them to think about a particular deal that they're pursuing right now where they're not going to want to let it go. We're asking the abstract in advance of them actually being you know, in the decision. So they said, well, with price, 
that's a strong enough signal that you really shouldn't pursue it anymore because you're clearly just a stalking horse. They don't actually want to know anything about your product. They're just trying to, you know, obviously beat somebody else down, a competitor down on yeah. price. So they said that's a kill criteria where we just kill right away. With uh, can't get an executive in the room, they said, well, we need to find out more information. And that information is once you see that, like once it's meeting number two or three, and you haven't been able to get an executive in the room, you offer up executive alignment. And you just say, well, we'll bring a decision maker from our side. You bring a decision maker from your side. We find that deals go more smoothly when we do that. Can we get that done for the next meeting? And then they, then what they knew was that if the answer was yes, they would proceed with the deal. If the answer was no, then they would stop. Then they would quit. So that's a good example of kill criteria as applied to a pretty specific example. Um, but we use kill criteria all the time. Like when I played poker, uh, I had a stop loss in place. Uh, stock traders use these where I just yep. said, if if uh, if I lose a certain amount of money in a game, I'm probably not going to be making very good decisions, particularly decisions about whether I should quit the game. So I'm going to decide in advance how much money I'm willing to lose. And at that moment, I have to get up and walk away. Um, when mountain climbing, people have turnaround times. So famously on Everest, for example, if you're going from camp yeah. four, which is the last camp you're at before summit, you know, you go to summit, yeah. um, the turnaround time is 1 p.m. Uh, and 1 p.m. is set because uh, you don't want to descend from the summit on Everest in darkness because you have to go past this spot called the Southeast Ridge, which is very narrow, very dangerous. You really need daylight when you're trying to cross this because otherwise you're going to fall like 8,000 feet into Nepal and like 12,000 feet into the Tibet, depending on which side you fall off of. Um, so, so the 1 p.m. turnaround time is basically saying if you don't get to the summit by 1 p.m., it's too likely at that point that you're going to get to the Southeast Ridge in darkness. Uh, and that's way too dangerous. And so no matter where you're standing, when 1 p.m. hits, you ought to turn yourself around. So that's another example of a kill criteria. But you can really set these kinds of things for anything, right? Like what are the yeah. signs or signals that I could get in the future and follow those. So that's like a great strategy is kill criteria. Um, a second well, Annie, I, I wanted just to ask, how how do you increase the probability that you will listen to the kill criteria? Because just because you have it doesn't mean a person will always follow it. Yeah, so I, there's basically two answers to that. One is you have to set a pre-commitment along with the kill criteria. So you, you can't just sort of write down what the kill criteria are. You have to say what you're going to do about it. Yeah. Um, and that will increase the probability that you follow it. Now, I want to mm -hmm. be clear about kill criteria. You're, you're yep. going to be pretty bad at them. Uh, you're going to rationalize and come up with all sorts of reasons why you can turn it around and it's okay that it's past 1 p.m. Or, you know, I know this, this customer is just talking about price, but I'm sure I can convince them. Like, you're going to do that. Like, in poker, I did it all the time. I had stop losses. Trust me, I did not follow them all the time. And this is where I want people to really understand this. This is really important. I followed it more than I would have. Yes. My quitting decisions were so yes. much better because yes. I had a stop loss in place. Did I blow through it sometimes? Of course. Did I sometimes yeah. lose twice as much as I said I was going to? Yes. Yeah. Obviously. But I it was a lot better because I followed it enough. I was more likely to follow it because I had those things in place. So we have to realize that none of these things are we ever going to be perfect at. But when you set these things in advance, you get better. Right. So, Annie, you've uh, you've mentioned expected value a few times, and I, I I don't know if there's enough understanding of actually how to use expected value. Could you maybe just 
describe that a little bit so people might, might be able to start sort of thinking about expected value and how it might apply to their particular situation? Sure. So, uh, so expected value. Okay. Uh, it's how much do you expect to make on something in the long run? That's basically a simple explanation. So uh, let me explain. Yeah. Um, you're flipping a coin. The coin's going to land heads 50% of the time, tails 50% of the time. Um, I have a bet with you where uh, if it lands heads, uh, I have to give you $2. And if it lands tails, you have to give me a dollar. So the question is, is that positive expected value for you? Should you take that bet from me? So we can figure that out by saying, basically, how much can I win times the probability that I will win it? So we know the coin will land your way 50% of the time and you can win $2. So it's $2 time 50, times 50%. So your net net gain is a dollar uh, or, you know, your gain, sorry, your gain in the long run is a dollar. And then on the losing side, it's going to land tails 50% of the time. You're going to lose a dollar when that happens. So you multiply a dollar by 50% and that gets 50% yeah. is your um, 50 cents rather is your loss yeah. over time. And now we can subtract one from the other. So your gain yeah. is a dollar over time. Your loss is 50 cents over time. That's positive 50 cents for you, which is an expected value of 50 cents for every dollar that you're risking. So, right, because you, you're risking yeah. a dollar. That's what you could yeah. lose. Um, so yeah. that's pretty great. Now, why this is hard for people is that notice that on any given flip, you can never win 50 cents. Right. You're going to either win $2 or lose a dollar. So this is yeah. this is what you expect over the long run. So if you flip the coin a thousand times, you would win 50 cents times a thousand over that long run because you're going to win 50 cents on the dollar. But on any given flip, you could either win $2 or lose a dollar. So that's expected. But what we're thinking about is what is your long run expected value? Like in the long run, do you expect to do really well? So, so let's take an example of how we might think about like long run versus short run. Yeah. Let's say your heart's desire is to become a doctor. Okay. And this is going to bring yeah. you great joy, uh, happiness, fulfillment. This is going to be what you want from your life. And you'll make some money too. Yay for you. Uh, and now you're taking organic chemistry. So one would assume that organic chemistry is like having the coin land tails and you having to give me a dollar, right? So in that moment, it stinks. So this is kind of where like the grit quit decision comes in, right? So the question in that moment when it stinks is, but is this a good thing for me in the long run? Like, yeah. is this something where, yes, I have to get over this hurdle. Like, it's really painful because I'm paying someone a dollar right now. But should I continue on this course? Because in the long run, it's going to be positive for me. So what it's costing me, which is organic chemistry, is less than what I'm gaining. And we can think about that even when we're talking about like running a marathon, right? Like for me to run a marathon, I've got to do training. That's going to cost me time away from my family, uh, time away from my friends. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to go out at night and like have a glass of wine, uh, whatever. It's also like painful. <laughs> I'm going to have some physical <laughs> discomfort. But yeah. I'm, what I may say is that those are the costs that those are the dollars that I have to pay. But really, I'm getting two dollars out of it because uh, finishing a marathon is something very few people do. It's going to be really good for my health. I'm going to feel like I really accomplished something amazing. And so you're thinking about Basically, what are the costs? What are the benefits? And do the benefits outweigh the costs in the long run? 
that's what expected value is. It's what we mean by thinking about expected value. Now, people might say, but what about risk? And risk is just, can you afford to lose the things that you could lose, right? So where risk comes in is like, um, you're thinking about what's, what is the risk that I'm taking on for the benefits that I'm trying to get? So what, what am I risking in that process? And sometimes that risk gets too great. So, uh, and that can change. So when I start to decide that I'm going to climb Everest, for example, um, I'm sacrificing lots of time with my family. It costs a lot of money to be able to do it. I'm obviously going to experience lots and lots of discomfort, but getting to the summit is, I think is worthwhile for me until it's after 1 PM. That's what that turnaround time is telling you is that the expected value is now shifted because now when you're calculating what the costs are, they're now going to outweigh the benefits because the chances, the probability you die has now gone too high, yeah. right? So yeah. that's really what that turnaround time is trying to tell you. So when we're setting kill criteria, what we're really doing is saying, this is the moment where you, you know the expected value is now negative, right? So when you start going into something, you're assuming that you've started it because you think the expected value is positive, but you're going to find new information out along the way that's going to help you figure out, is this like a net benefit or a net cost? Um, and then the kill criteria are helping you to identify that moment when you figure it out. Okay, now yeah. this is no longer good for me, right? I, I broke my leg. I shouldn't keep yeah. running. Yeah, that's helpful. So it's, it's the tandem of expected value with a kill criteria that really work uh, in, in, in unison with, uh, with each other. Thanks for that. Yeah, Anna. like we can kind of think about any quitting decision or persevering decision is a decision yeah. about expected value, right? Like when you start yeah. things, it's because you think that they're good for you. Um, and when you stop things, it should be because you think they're bad for you. Not because it's hard, not because you're taking organic chemistry, but because you've decided you didn't want to be a doctor in the first place. That's that's the difference, right? So that's the thing that we need to keep our eye on. So we're trying to keep our eye more on the long run. Is this net good for me in comparison to other things I could be doing? Yeah, yeah. you've got this other funny sounding tool uh, that I'd love to talk about, monkeys and pedestals. What is that and, and how does that relate to helping us make better quitting decisions? Yeah, okay, so, so when I'm talking about like kill criteria, I'm talking about things you're doing kind of on the back end of the decision. So yeah. you're going into the decision, you've made it, and now you're saying like, what are the things that would cause me to kill? And one of the things I want to say about kill criteria is you, you could have already started it. You can always set new kill criteria, right? So you could be having been working on a project for six months. You can still set kill criteria for the next three. Um, so that that's um, something that sort of happens where you're trying to go after the fact, like what's going to make me stop? Um, you can also have a quitting coach, someone who's helping you from the outside with these decisions. That's going to be an after the fact kind of thing also. Yeah. But monkeys and pedestals is actually a really interesting mental model that helps you figure out how you can attack a problem to make quitting easier later, which in turn makes it easier to figure out when you should persevere. So because we're trying to accomplish both things at once. So what is monkeys and pedestals? This comes from Astro Teller, who's amazing, who yep. is the CEO, otherwise known as Captain of Moonshots over at uh, X at Google. And X is the innovation hub. At Google. So they're trying to do all these moonshots, which is why he's captain of moonshots. Um, uh -huh. Now, moonshots, obviously, sort of by definition, are, well, they're moonshots. They, they have a low probability of succeeding, but if they succeed, they're going to be incredibly high impact. 
So we're talking about things that you're doing. We're not talking about little tiny incremental changes. We're like trying to make the world 10x better. That's actually in their charter um, and get something to commercialization uh, from the time you start the project between uh, to between five and 10 years. Uh, and the rationale for that is that before five years, someone's probably already doing it. After 10 years, what you're doing will probably already be obsolete. So they have this very specific charter. It has to be world changing um, and able to be commercialized within this very particular window. And when you're trying to do things that have a 10x impact, um, that you're making that decision under a lot of uncertainty because you're doing something super innovative. So you need to be able to pay attention to, to the signals after you start the project. They're going to help you to quit. And so monkeys and pedestals is a mental model that they use over there to help them to get to that answer, right? Should I stay or should I go, basically? So here's how monkeys and pedestals go. Imagine that you've decided that you're going to create this amazing act that you're going to do in the town square with like a box out in front of you for people to throw money into. Uh, and you're going to make a lot of money if you can do it. And the act that you've decided that you're going to create is uh, you're going to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal. So that's what you're going to do. I, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, because that you'd pay to see that. I, uh, yeah, I would. Absolutely. That'd be pretty exciting. A monkey juggling flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in a town square. Okay. So this is what you're trying to do. So the question is, what should you attack first? Because one of the things is something that is really hard to do, which if you can do it, is really going to like unlock a whole system. It's going to unlock a lot of stuff for you. And the other is building a pedestal. So <laughs> why? Because if you building the pedestal is like you already know you can do it. So uh, we've been building pedestals for a long time. We don't need any new knowledge to be able to build pedestals. We, we literally have 100% certainty that we can do it. In fact, if we really had our backs against the wall, we could turn a milk crate upside down. Boom, <laughs> pedestal. The other thing, though, is the bottleneck, right? Like if you can't actually get yeah. the monkey to juggle the flaming torches, the act is never going to work. And in that case, there's no point in building the pedestal in the first place. Okay, so yeah. what's important about this is that what it means is that when you're entering into a project, you need to identify the monkeys. You need to say, what are the bottlenecks to success for the thing that I'm trying to do? And let me tackle that first before I build any pedestals. Why? Because there's no point. Why build the pedestal if you can't train the monkey? What, you don't need it, right? So you've got, you have to train the monkey first. Okay, so that's, that's the really important piece. Identify the monkeys, tackle that first. In other words, do the hard thing first and beware of false progress. Because here's the big issue is that if you do uh, build a pedestal before you know about the other stuff, you think you've made progress. Look at my pedestal that I built but you haven't actually made any progress because before you ever put a hammer to a nail, um, you already knew you could build the pedestal. So it's totally false progress. And what's the problem with false progress? Cause you might say, well, so what? You, I mean, eventually you're gonna need the pedestal. What does it matter if you built it? Well, let's go back to all these issues of escalation of commitment and not wanting to close accounts and the losses and sunk cost. The time and effort and energy that you spent building that pedestal is sunk cost. You've now accumulated costs where you feel like if you abandon the project, you'll have wasted your time and you'll look at this pedestal that I built. It, it's wasted now, right? 
And that's going to create debris, cognitive debris, cognitive headwinds that make it harder for you to quit because you now have this pedestal in hand because you didn't go and train the monkey first. So how many times, let me ask you this, how many times when you see people approaching projects, do you hear this word said, or this sentence rather, this phrase said in, in, a, in a meeting? Well, let's tackle the low hanging fruit first. Yes. Oh goodness. And I hate that phrase anyways, but I hear it all the time. Yes. Right. Well, low hanging fruit by definition are pedestals. So like, yes. I'm not saying you shouldn't tackle the low hanging fruit at some point, mm-hmm. but you should never tackle any low hanging fruit until you figured out if you can get to the top of the tree, because if you yeah. can't get to the top of the tree, all you're doing is getting people endowed to the project. You're getting people to, to put time and energy and resources and money and effort into a project, which is going to make it really hard for them to want to quit for fear of having wasted it, for fear of the career risk that comes along with being the person who recommends that you shut something down as an example, right? So you're creating now all of this resistance to quitting by this pedestal building, which is actually false progress. Any low hanging fruit that you tackle is false progress. You should never do that until you already know that you've unlocked the system, until you already know that that monkey can juggle. And in fact, at, at, at X, when they're giving project presentations, right? They're saying, we wanna turn seawater into fuel that cars can run on. Um, you'll see hashtag monkey and hashtag monkey first on the project presentations, trying to remind people that you have to tackle the hard thing first. Small business owners are really, really struggling. They're overwhelmed, they're underwater. I mean, they are in the losses. A lot of small businesses right now are in the losses and uh, the, the the easiest example is like I have so many conversations lately with small business owners that are trying to decide whether they should walk away or keep fighting, and and the biggest thing that keeps them there it seems is that they're in debt. What advice would you have for someone that's in the thick of it and they are completely overwhelmed, not knowing which way is up, and they're working you know eighty hours a week? What advice would you have for them? So I think, let me tell you a story about Ron Conway, because I think that Ron Conway really helps us understand, like, how can we kind of get us out of these problems? Because it is really hard. It's like, if you're, if you're in debt, again, the moment that you walk away, the moment that you shut the business down, that's the moment that you know that you're not going to get that money back in the sense of like, not get it back through that business. Right. But of course, the question that we should be asking ourselves is, am I more likely to recover whatever it is that I owe, or I've I've put into this through sticking with this business or it's shifting to something else. Like this is what we always have to remember. It's the opportunity cost of your time, of your effort, of your capital. Am I going to be better off doing something else? That's the question that we always need to ask ourselves. And in the moment, it's really, really hard because it's just really hard to sort of admit defeat or admit failure or, you know, that moment. So Ron Conway, I think, gives us such a good example of, of sort of how to solve for this problem. Uh, as best as we can. So Ron Conway was uh, the founder of uh, SV Angel, which is one of the most successful uh, angel investing uh, outfits uh, that's ever been. Um, Name a big unicorn that you can imagine, and he probably invested in it at the angel round. So he's a super smart guy. Um, Now, obviously, he's investing in people who are like super gritty, like companies that succeed have stuck it out. We know that, right? But when you talk to him, it's really interesting. He kind of 
the thing that he's sort of the most proud of, which I think is so interesting, is his ability to help founders see when it's time to walk away. So he actually kind of thinks of himself as like a quitting coach. And, you know, he's got this mantra, which I think is so important, which is life's too short. Um, And he just says it over and over, like life's too short to spend your time on something that isn't worth spending time on anymore. Like even when you have accrued losses, if there's something else you should shift to, but that's hard for us to do. So what does he do? Like, you know, when you talk to any, when you talk to any VC, when you talk to anybody in venture, you know, they'll say they know when a company is failing, right? Like people from the outside looking in can see this isn't going to work. It's not going to be venture scale. Like it's obviously, you know. I wish the founder would really figure that one out. But a lot of times they won't speak that out loud because they are they think they're being like supportive. So they'll be like, yeah, you know, I think you can get to product market fit, you know, and then the founder walks out of the room and they're like, that thing's going nowhere. You know, it's like, they're not really saying this out loud all the time, but Ron Conway really prided himself on like, I'm going to say this stuff out loud, like in the nicest way that's going to help my founders get to where they need to go. So he would sit down with him and he would tell them, he would tell them what he saw, right? So he'd say, look, this is why I think that things aren't going very well. I think that you should consider walking away from this endeavor. And invariably, they would argue with him. So, uh, you know, it's always like, no, I think we can turn it around. We're just about to achieve product market fit. Or, you know, I think we've got this new, uh, you know, marketing campaign going. And I think we're really going to be able to ramp revenue. And so and so forth. And so what was interesting yeah. was that he he didn't argue with them. And I think this is a really important piece of his like soup that works really well is he didn't say yeah. you're wrong, I know better. He said, "Okay. You say you can turn it around. I'm not going to argue with you. You're in it. You're the founder. You know your company better than I do. You can turn it around." What does that look like? So he would say, like, let's just think about the next two months or the next quarter, right? Tell me what turning it around looks like by the end of Q3. And he would sit down and work with them to write down what does that look like? What would that look like if they're actually successfully turning around? Doesn't that sound like kill criteria? Sure does. Because that's what he was using. So he's essentially setting those benchmarks. Like if we think about Barry Stahl's work uh, back when, where he has people, when they make that initial investment, say, what is this division going to look like in the next five years? What are the benchmarks that this is going to have hit that really actually help them to get to better decisions about what those allocations should be later that are more rational? He's, He's really doing the same thing here. So he says, okay, great. What does this look like at the end of Q3? And they write those down together. And then they agree that they're going to revisit that. And if they haven't hit those benchmarks, then the founder should walk away. So what's really important about that, I think, is that otherwise, I hope that you can sort of intuit that if you make some progress toward that benchmark, like let's say you get halfway there and you haven't actually gone through this process of writing it down and working with somebody else who you're now accountable to, that you're going to say, but look, we made some progress. Yes. But the thing is that what you're agreeing is that it's not, that's not going to be enough progress. You're, you're saying this is where you really need to be. And what he finds is that people, people are then more willing to actually kind of shut it down then. And then he says, even then he'll still often get a lot of pushback, even after they miss, he'll get pushback. And it's always very similar pushback that has to do with what we're talking about, which is 
like what's the time somebody's put in versus the time they're going to have to put in. So the first thing is always I owe it to my investors, right? Like I, I have to keep going and they'll think very poorly of me and all of these things. And what he says is that's not true. First of all, I can give you a list of people who return capital who I then invested in their next endeavor. In fact, investors think it's great when you do that. And I think that this is something that's really important that he does because very often we don't just worry about how we're going to feel about feeling. We worry about how other people are going to judge us, right? They're going to think we're wusses. They're going to think that we didn't, you know, put in, they're going to think we're a bad character, right? Weak-willed, all those things. But you know, when, you know, you've seen people quit jobs or quit relationships, you're usually pretty happy for them, but they yeah. think you're going to judge them harshly. So he, as an investor is saying, I'm not going to judge you harshly. If you return capital to me, because you realize that this, this is no longer worth my capital, then I am going to think highly of you because I recognize that that's a hard thing to do. And that shows a certain amount of thoughtfulness. That's just like the kind of person that I want to invest in. So he sort of points that to them. Like you owe it once you realize that this company is not going to go anywhere, you owe it to your investors to return the capital to them because they can put that capital in other places, maybe even another company that you start. And that's yes. going to be better. So that's yeah. the second thing that they always say is this one. I owe it to my employees. And I think that this is always really hard for people in business, right? Like, cause you get, you know, you really feel like, but, oh, but if I shut down, then my employees aren't going to have jobs and it's going to be really horrible for them. And he says, no, you owe it to your employees to let them go. So mm -hmm. what does he say to them? He says, well, first of all, in startups, they're probably working for like very little cash and mostly equity, Right. So once you've determined that that equity isn't worth their time, it's not fair. It's actually doing them a disservice to keep them in that role because these are really yeah. smart, really driven people who could be really changing the world and like getting equity that's really valuable. And once you discover that the equity isn't worth their time, you should let them go so they can move on to something that is worth their time. Now, sometimes it's not an equity decision, right? Sometimes it's just like, um, uh, you know, you feel bad because the person is not going to have a job. But if your business is failing, you should let them start to look more quickly. Like you should free them up to go find an opportunity in, in a successful organization. And even if your business isn't failing, even if it's just the company, you know, the, the employee that you have is kind of in. Eh, right. And you're afraid to fire them because it's, you're going to feel bad and it's a hard conversation and they're going to now be unemployed. Just remember that they know they're not doing well in that either. And you're denying them the opportunity to get the feedback and go find somewhere where they are a better fit, where they are going to thrive more. So we want to allow people to be released from the situation they're in so that they can go and find something better because there's opportunity cost to keeping them in that role. Separate and apart from the cost to your business, there's a cost to that individual to not let them go find somewhere where they're going to be a better fit, right? So I yeah. think that with people who are in this really difficult situation, which is a horrible situation, go find somebody you trust. You know, Kahneman said to me, you have to find somebody who loves you, but doesn't care much about hurt feelings in the moment. What did he mean? Someone who has your long-term best interest at heart, but is okay with telling you a hard truth, right? Go yeah. find that person, sit down with them and say, I'm in this horrible situation. Help me work through what are the things that I could see within the next quarter, say, that would help me to understand if I'm turning this thing around or if it's really a, you know, a dead person walking. Um, let me work that out with someone who I really trust as my coach 
Now I've developed a set of kill criteria. I have an outside perspective with someone who's going to see things more clearly than I am, who I am accountable to, who's going to help me coach how I'm going to actually now either wind the business down or get me to where I want to go. And then in separate and apart from that, when you do actually set out, what are those benchmarks that I think that I need to be hitting to be able to make this decision at the end of the next quarter, you can then also work out with your coach and other people in your organization. Okay. What are the things that we think we need to do? What are the inputs in actually achieving those outcomes? So it actually helps you in that way. Also, it makes it more likely that you're going to hit those benchmarks by having done this exercise. So I I think the short thing is you don't have to make this decision today. It's going to be very hard for you to make the decision today and that's okay. So think about how long do I have whatever that is, whether it's two weeks or two months or a quarter or two quarters, I don't care. Figure out how long it is that you have. That could just be runway, for example. How much more debt can I afford to accrue? Um, What's the time that I'm going to accumulate that? And then ask yourself, what are things going to look like at the end of that time period? And get somebody to help you, get a coach to help you with that decision. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I love that. Find find a, a, a group of loving critics, as you say. The other two things I think that are really helpful, and like with the employee discussion, and you and you and I have talked about these before, is probability thinking and long-term thinking. And I mean, if you think of the, what's the probability my employees will be happier in the long run if I let them go, I think that that can make those decisions at least a little bit easier. In the yeah, moment. and I think that that's something that's so important, and particularly if you're talking about startups, by the way, where the the employers yeah. are working for equity, it's like. There's, you know, we have to remember it's it's not that people are doing this in in a way to to be mean or trap people in in spots where they ought not be trapped. It's the cognitive forces that allow us to rationalize the decision to stick to it are so strong that those rationalizations often when you actually sort of step back and say, what am I really saying here aren't rational. That's why they're called rationalizations because they're not they're not really rational. So particularly yeah. when someone is working for equity, the moment that you yourself determine that their equity isn't worth their time, then you have to let them go. Right? And as much as you 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 don't want to, you know, you oh you're without a job or those kinds of things, like you've determined that the equity that they have made a decision to work for is not worth their time, then don't take yes. up any more of their time. This is something cool. that um Stuart Butterfield I think really uh, understood and got right. Uh, He had two other startups before that. And one of the things that he said to me about shutting those startups down was that was exactly it, was that he felt really bad. He wanted to help his employees get other jobs. But for him, he felt a moral duty that when he determined that that equity wasn't worth their while, it was his duty to allow them to go somewhere else. And I think he, he gets that so right. You've said that when you started playing poker, uh, you were playing against people who have been playing for 40 years, but you were convinced that they hadn't been learning a damn thing um, <laughs> for the last- Well, some you know, of them, the not all of them. <laughs> for the last 39. And we we get stuck in these habitual patterns and it can happen to anyone where we just stop learning and we and we stagnate. And I was so curious how that experience and that insight has informed how you set your life up and how you live your life. Gosh, you know, I mean, I think I think- so much of the challenges of poker and decision making under uncertainty that poker presents in like these super high stakes environments 
uh, has formed the way that I just make decisions elsewhere. You know, I think that sort of colliding with my background in cognitive science. Um, so, you know, in poker, it's like there's so much luck involved in how any hand turns out. And you you can't see the other player's cards. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, it's a really hard decision making problem. And, you know, what I what I saw was that um, when you're dealing with so much uncertainty, all of these biases that can really interfere with good decision making really can can really dig in because it's not like two plus two equals four, right? It's not like you do something and then the answer is, you know, the outcome is directly connected to the thing that you, you do. You can play a hand great and lose. You can play a hand great and win. You can play a hand really poorly and win or lose. Um, and that presented a very hard decision-making problem where you had to be really thoughtful about not just quitting decisions, but which were really important. I mean, that's why like I had things like stop losses, for example, I, you know, I would always say to myself, like, you know, it's one long game, right? That's what I would say to try to try to get that long-term view. It's like Ron Conway saying, life's too short for you to be stuck in this failing endeavor. Like you're too smart. You should think about it as one long game and where's your time best spent. And I spent a lot of time thinking about those issues, but also issues about how do I like make decisions about closing these feedback loops well? How do I communicate hands to other people to make sure that they're the best coaches for me, right? So like one of the things I discovered was if I want to get someone's true opinion, never tell them how the hand turned out. Because the minute you tell them how the hand turned out, they want to make that world match up, right? So if they know you lost or they know you won, it's going to change the hand. So I would always only tell them like the particular, the information they needed for them to give me a response about the particular decision I was interested in. And that was because I wanted them to be able to be really good coaches for me. Um, and so there's all sorts of ways that I still do that, right? Um, I was always trying to be in my opponent's shoes. So uh, I try to think about things from like, um, the, like the employee's perspective, like, is it fair for them to be stuck in this situation? Um, how do I think other people are going to act? What is their perspective on the problem? Like, even when I get really mad and I think that somebody has done something uh, so egregious, I will really try to stop myself and say, well, let me look at it from their perspective. Let me really try to stand in that from their perspective. And part of the way that I do that is actually to get myself a coach and say, let me describe the situation without trying to lay my opinion about what a jerk they were. And let me just say, like, I, I was, I had a situation where I was kind of in a tiff with somebody and, uh, sorry, that's my dog again. Um, I was in a tiff with someone and I wasn't sure whether I had the right to be so angry. So all I did was I literally just talk to someone who I really trust and read the text to them. So I'm not laying my opinion on anything. I'm letting them know this is what they said. This is what I said in response. This is what they said. This is what I said in response, so on and so forth. So I was, I really try to think about like just the facts, right? And I think that that's something so important. So, um, you know, so I just said, I just literally like I screenshotted the text and said, just give me your opinion. That's it. Like, tell me what's going on here. Um, so I, I just think that like in a lot of different ways, I really, I, I try to live that in my own life. But I, I want to go back to something that, that I said earlier about like blowing through stop losses and not always following kill criteria and things like that. Um, I stink at it, but I think I'm better than I would be otherwise. And I think that that's something also that poker really taught me is that you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with like 
you know, we're riddled with cognitive bias biases. There's ways that we're wired that make us so far from rational. Uh, it's really hard to stick to these things, even when you have a pre-commitment to do so. You can study and try and like gain knowledge and know the ways that your decision might might go wrong and put all of these systems in place to try to help to get you to more rational decisions. And you will, you will get to more rational decisions, but you will also really stink at it. You're just going to be way less stinky than you otherwise would be. And that is such a huge win. And I think that we just really have to accept that, right? That decisions are hard. And for most decisions that you make, you know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. And there's just plain luck and trying to figure out like, did I get unlucky or did I make a bad decision or, you know, any of those things is just hard. And so let's like show ourselves a little grace and recognize that just in the trying, we're doing better. And that's going to make a really big difference. That's wonderful advice. Quit is your third book. How are you evaluating its success? Well, actually, Quit is my third general audience book. I just want to say that. I wrote a bunch of poker books before I ever wrote Quit. Got it. Quit thank, is, you. thank you for that. Quit might be my eighth book, I think. I'm not sure. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, so general, so third general audience book. That's good. good distinction. Third general okay. audience book, right. So okay. I, people okay. don't need to go read my poker books. That was a long time ago. But anyway, it's my third general <laughs> I know audience. Lots of people that do. Yeah. How am I evaluating the success, right? So, yeah. uh, you know what? This is a book that I can actually say I wrote for myself. I, you know, when you asked me in the beginning, you know, was there that moment, right? It, with my, with the first, with the first general audience book, Think, Thinking in Bats, it was something I'd been thinking about for a long time. Like I wanted to write it because I was giving lots of talks on it. And I just thought it would be kind of cool because I've been sort of developing those, those ideas over probably a decade. Um, before I started writing that book. And uh, I, I, I felt a need to try to translate that into book form, but I, I did, it's hard not to care whether other people like it as well, right? Like it's hard not to measure, like, does it become a national bestseller? Like those kinds of things. Um, and particularly for that one, because it was kind of a slow burn and it was a long process of trying to figure out, do I want to sit down and write this book or don't I or whatever. When it came to quit, I had to write it. Like it, it's, it's really like, I feel like I didn't really have a choice. I was so excited about the topic. I had talked to so many people, um, you know, and it's like when you're taking up the time of someone like Richard Thaler or Daniel Kahneman, it's like, I sort of felt like I don't, I'd let they're excited about it too. Like, I'd like to actually put this to some use and put these words down on paper. And then the other thing is like, there were so many cool stories, right? Like stories about climbing Everest or Stuart Butterfield and in, in shutting his company down and then founding Slack or even like Sarah Olson Martinez, who just was deciding whether to quit her job. Um, Barry Staw's dad, who, who started a business and, um, built an empire and then the empire crumbled and sort of what happened with that right or uh this sears or the california bullet train or or this one coach mike neighbors who's the coach of the the razorbacks um women's team who just has this really cool philosophy about giving people time off or plan b's or or those kinds of things or even like someone like maya shankar who brilliant woman but she was going to be a a you know a violinist like at the 
elite, like she studied with Ixaf Perlman and she, she um, tore a tendon in her hand and just all of a sudden was forced to quit. Like these kinds of stories, which I just thought like people should hear these stories. Like people should hear them and hear that quitting is okay. And there are amazing things that come out of quitting. And so I'm kind of okay. Like I wrote it and I'm pretty okay. Like, I hope other people like it, but uh, in this particular case, I feel like I the success is already done because I, I feel like I did these people's stories justice. I really do. And I feel like I said what I needed to say about why there's nothing wrong with quitting and we should be rehabilitating the concept and you should be okay. Like loss cutting is fine. Like, you know, grit is a virtue but quit is a virtue too. The title of the first chapter is the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. You know, like, so I, I don't know, like I'm in a pretty good place, right? Like, I, I think that I, I think I did justice to the topic as well as I can do justice to the topic. And I, I got something off my chest that I needed to get off my chest. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, Annie, that's generous for you to share that uh, with us. And I, and I think it's just so cool to, for you to pull back the veil and, and uh, let us in a little bit to what it means to you and, and why you wrote it. I, I, think that's, I think that's really beautiful. And I want to also thank you on a personal level. I have just really enjoyed uh, the books I have read of yours and our conversations. And, and one of the things I like so much about your work is that it transcends all domains of a person's life. And I, I think that the work that you have uh, poured yourself into over the years and devoted your life to uh, is uh, as much about helping people's personal lives as it is their business lives. Uh, and, and I think that that's really special. So thank you for the impact uh, on me and everybody else that has had the same experience. And thank you so much for joining us today. And I, I think that your book is going to give license to these difficult conversations about quitting. And I think everybody should read it. Oh, well, that's, that's very nice of you. I mean, I, I feel like I, did, I think about decision making. And like everything's a decision, right? It's not like business decisions or personal decisions or or whatever. Like these are things that, you know, that that this is the thing that I really, I really believe like very deeply that, and I say it, I think it's in the opening of Thinking in Bets, like the, the first general audience book that I ever wrote is like, there's only the two things that determine how your life turns out, luck and the quality of your decisions. So- you know, I just have this obsession with like, how do you think about decision quality? How do you get better at it? Because better decisions leads to better lives. And in fact, if you think about it, you can go broader than that and say it also leads to a better society. Because, uh, you know, if people, individuals in a society have better lives and are better decision makers, you end up with a better society. So I just, you know, whatever little bit of impact that I can make in terms of helping people make better decisions, it, that's enough for me. Annie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at unleashresults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.